Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. Welcome back, everybody, to Sounds of the World podcast. Uh, today, we have a very special guest on our show. She's a composer of the piece you just heard, The Blackbird Project, and so many other wonderful pieces um, that capture the imagination. She's originally from Charlottesville, Virginia, and originally went and eventually went to Bennington College and then SUNY Buffalo, where she completed her PhD. She's received grants and honors from the American Composers Forum, the Banff Center, Louisiana Division of the Arts, Arts KC, Meet the Composer, the National Endowment for the Arts, ASCAP, the McDowell Colony, and Yale University, among others. Her music has been performed throughout the United States, Canada, South America, Asia, and Europe. She previously worked at the University of Missouri-Kansas City Conservatory, and now works at Louisiana State University as the Associate Professor of Music Composition. In the summer of 2020, she released her third CD project featuring Secret Sky, performed by the Athens Philharmonic Orchestra. Today, we're going to talk to her about her life, how she got into composing, and the intersections of art and music. Um, so please welcome to our podcast, Mara Gibson. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's great Thank to see you guys. Thank you so much for being here. It's, it's always good to catch up, and uh, it's great that we um, have, have you on. I mean, it's, it's an honor. So, Likewise. So first, I mean, let's just start from the beginning and see, uh, you know, we like to know, do you come from a musical family or are you kind of the odd one out? <laughs> <laughs> well, it definitely skipped a generation or two. Um, my, <laughs> my great-grandfather was uh, a conductor. I mean, he ran a community orchestra out of his backyard. Um, my grandmother played uh, piano. I think that was a big inspiration for me, but my parents are actually both in the sciences. My dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse. Um, I'm the oldest of three and definitely the most creative. So, I mean, in, in some ways, yes, I'm the black sheep, but in other ways, you know, I think, I think it's been in my family for a long time. So, um, so there's been that thread. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Did you start, I think you said um, that you were a pianist originally, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, that's how I started my love of music, for sure. I don't know if I'd ever call myself a pianist, even though I'm <laughs> <student. laughs> in undergrad. Um, I mean, I, I loved playing, uh, but my real love came to composition when I was in graduate or when I was in undergrad, when I was at Bennington. Um, and I think I got my first glimpse of that when I was uh, in high school and I started writing songs and I realized, wow, this is really cool. You can, you can kind of determine form and, and you can, you can be in control of it all. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yes, I started out as a pianist and got pretty far. I mean, I, I love playing. I just uh, suffered like pretty immense performance anxiety. And so I, it was just not my thing. Um, I think I finally got to a point where I could overcome that. But, um, but then I was too far deep in composition. And so <laughs> I can totally relate for the performance <laughs> anxiety. I used to, um, I, I studied voice while I did composition and my hands would go numb every time I sang like in front of people and it, oh, <laughs> it's many, yeah. many years to work through that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's so funny because I think once I did work through that in, in my own professional life, um, I, I had my son when I was 32 and I suffered really terrible carpal tunnel and I literally couldn't play then after that. So I, you know, it was like this weird push and pull with, with my right. instrument, but I love it. And I still find a lot of solace in, in playing Bach and, and 
you know, just my son and I play, have played piano since he's been growing up. So, you know, that's, that's my hook, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I think that, that bond that you can share with your parents, you know, from your son's perspective, my mom, um, played piano and I, I grew up listening to her play and it's it, those are some of my favorite memories is having my mom like play Rondo Alaturka by Mozart and me just being like play more play more <laughs> just in awe <laughs> that's really yeah. cool I get to share that with your son well he's uh he's writing beats right now and really into logic pro so um you know he whether he goes into music or not it's 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 still carrying on so that's cool yeah that's awesome so did your family have a like uh besides your great grandfather did they have a lot of love and music around all the time or no, i mean not really i started taking piano lessons um in part because i would lock myself in my room i i was an only child till i was seven and mm -hmm. so um yeah i would lock myself in my room and listen to records and my parents were like hmm what's going on here and so uh, I think it was my grandmother that was like, she needs to take piano lessons. She needs to be in music. And so I did. And then I started writing little pieces, you know, pretty early on. Um, it wasn't until high school that I had like a super rigorous piano teacher. Uh, but yeah, I mean, my parents were always, they were supportive for sure. That's Even good. if they didn't completely understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, I was um talking to a couple of people I, like Paul Novak I don't know if you've heard of him um he goes to University of Chicago now but he like he's the only music person in his family and you know I was the only music person in my family uh you know even my cousins they're all either lawyers or stand-up comedians so you know it's like <laughs> wow multiple stand-up comedians <laughs> well so far just one we'll see what happens with the youngest awesome <laughs> But yeah, and you know, my mom was an English professor, my grandfather served in the Marines, you know, so there's like no music except for records or CDs and things, so. Yeah, but I think those things carry through. I mean, I remember my grandmother taking me to the ballet in New York City, you know, they, my grandmother lived in Pennsylvania. And so oftentimes I would go up as an only child until I was seven to go stay with her for part of the summer. And she and my aunt would take me to these New York City trips and, you know, we'd go see the Rockettes and we'd see this ballet and this musical and that. And I'd get a new dress every time. And we had like, oh, wow. opera, opera binoculars to watch the shows <laughs> from. It was amazing. But I, I really think that helped shape me in some critical way, even though I, I don't think I was completely aware until much later in my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My mom always quote, uh, credits my love of music to her listening to Mahler symphonies when she, I was in utero. So. Oh. <laughs> you can't get much better than that. No. <laughs> so you started composing songs pretty early and then what, uh, so who were like some of your inspirations? Early on, I mean, I think Bach, for sure, just because I was totally fascinated with the fact that his music could both instigate emotion and like it activated my mind at the same time. Mm -hmm. And of course, I, you know, played all of the inventions and symphonias and got somewhat through the fugues. I don't think I was ever that good, but, <laughs> you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed studying them <laughs> and listening to other people play them and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, so I think that's probably my youngest love. I mean, my parents listened to a lot of folk music. Um, so I wasn't like one of those kids that came out of a classical you know, <laughs> upbringing uh, by any means. I just had these sort of external forces. Um, and then in high school, I had a really wonderful musician. Um, a, a jazz trumpet player was my AP music theory teacher. And he was like, hey, you got to do this. I was like, eh, what? You know, I'm writing songs <laughs> about my dog that just died and I'm 17 <laughs> and it's like all this angst ridden stuff. And he's like, no, no, Mara, you really, you, you've got something there. And 
I mean, I didn't really write my first instrumental piece till I got to college, but I, I really attribute a lot of that to my mentors. I had wonderful ones and Bennington was absolutely the right place for me because had I gone to a conservatory, I think I would have squelched my love for music. Whereas being in an environment where I was able to really explore other things and other, um, you know, very artistic things need, you know, but I mean, I was still able to experience other things and see other kinds of people. It really allowed me to thrive. And so, you know, I would say Bach and Bennington are kind of the two, my two biggest influences in terms of getting me into, you know, getting me hooked into composition. Oh, that's awesome. I find it pretty cool when you can have these external circumstances that aren't necessarily musical that can have these just profound impacts on your life, whether that's traveling or being in a certain city or growing up under a certain, you know, with a certain influence. And yeah, that's just, it's cool to hear, you know, everyone talk about their experiences. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And so when did art kind of start playing an idea into your composition because it's not just you know this piece that we're going to talk about but you know I remember being at LSU and we presented at the LSU or Louisiana Museum of Art yeah uh, about how art and music connected and so when did this become a passion oh that's tough I mean I think between language and art you know, I've always been inspired by these external motivators. It's really informed my process a lot. And, you know, whether it was poetry or visual art, I'm not sure which one came first, um, but I got pretty lucky in terms of, of meeting people and having opportunities that really allowed me to, to flourish that love. I mean, I was a literature minor at Bennington. And so I, you know, definitely always that was part of, of, of who I was and, and what I learned to love when I was in college. But then, you know, sort of as I moved through graduate school, going to SUNY Buffalo and being exposed to, you know, the legacy of Morton Feldman and so much of that ABEX movement that was present during that time, it, it really informed I think where I went in my professional career and then I was able I had a lot of opportunities that you know whether it was writing a piece uh for the Nelson Atkins um you know unveiling of the Roxy Payne sculpture ferment um which is the 60 foot tall metal sculpture in the Nelson Atkins um sculpture garden wow I mean, that was that that was profound because that was the first time I'd ever kind of put those two things together. And it was really purely from an inception point. But mm -hmm. um, but it does get me to a point where I can start planning out a form and planning out sort of a method. And it really lends itself to my process. Yeah, it's funny because, um, you know, we talked to Alan uh, Tyson earlier. And he has this theory that those who are more kind of legal minded and uh, just minded like to compose chaotically. And those who live a chaotic life like to compose more um, methodically, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that big, so the sculpture is, that's the, the big silver tree, correct? Yes. Yeah, right. that, um, so I, that was a piece that I wrote, uh, well, the, the museum commissioned me to write a piece, um, and I decided to write for Alan, uh, for Michael Hall, who, you know, was like one of my first major collaborative uh, instigators. I, I think that's, that's probably something I come back to a lot in visual art is that, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to meet some people that have true synergy. Mm -hmm. Michael Hall was one of the first people like that. And we've since worked on, I think, four pieces together. And, you know, I mean, I attribute a lot of, a lot of that development to him, but we were asked in 2011 to, um, to, to write a piece, or I was asked to write a piece and I wanted to write for solo viola and electronics, which was kind of strange for this massive 
sculpture. But, um, but I, I looked at, I, I researched the, the artist and the process for the artist and a lot of what he, the way that he approached um, or the, the pro his process with the dendroids, which is what they were called, you know, up until um, each iteration, he's got several like in DC and all over the place, but is that it comes out of a limb and breaks out to a branch and then twigs and that mm -hmm. idea got me really to thinking that lends itself to the viola in a lot of ways because <laughs> you know you've got these open strings and then those open strings reach out to chromaticism and so then I realized wow this is just it's a very basic structure but I can apply a lot of the structural attributes you know from the sculpture to um to this piece and he had a series of drawings preliminary drawings that um were done as a part of the piece and that's what really led me into the mapping um, of course I started that a lot in graduate school but but I think canopy was the first time that I really applied that um, in my professional career okay sorry <laughs> um, and then uh, so with that I wasn't like I hope I wasn't insinuating that, like, therefore your life is chaotic, so that's why you form them this way. But <laughs> um, just, uh, I remember with lessons and stuff, you were very adamant about mapping and about plotting out things. Um, and so it, it just feels like that's how you go about doing most of your compositions is making sure we plot these things out and... Well, yeah, but there's a lot of room. And I think there's always got to be a lot of room, just like, you know, in teaching, there's got to be a lot of leeway because A, everybody's different. Right, right. <laughs> every student is different. Every musician is different. Every collaboration is different. You know, you, I think once you start sinking into a pattern with how you approach these things, it becomes like, like a lawyer or a doctor, you know, it becomes these sort of more... <laughs> Um, it's, it's not nearly as rewarding. So I really look at every experience as being a new one and some absolutely have been more chaotic and others have absolutely been more methodical. And I think I hold on to mapping just because it gives me some sense of order. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there's a great, great quote by MC Escher, you know, about chaos and order. And it's actually been the inspiration for this bassoon concerto that I'm working on at, you know, I mean, it's like, and it goes back to Bach for me. It's, it's like the mind and the heart, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's even, and there's never, there's never, you know, for me, at least there's usually a dominant aspect for each project, but it, it changes, you know? Right. Right. The hardest thing for me, when I look at say abstract art or, um, you know, cause I've talked to Tyson Davis as well who's very influenced by art and uh, his is definitely much more modern art. Uh, how, how can, how do you go about getting inspiration from say MC Escher and then putting that into the piece? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wish I had a, a quick answer, but, um, <laughs> but I mean, let me just say that it starts with MC Escher and it starts with that inspiration point. And a big part of the bassoon concerto has been my work and relationship with Daryl Hale, um, who's the professor of bassoon here at LSU. And, you know, he's a dear friend and a dear colleague. Um, we've shared many students and talked about music and, you know, like, Michael Hall and Megan Enan and Al Tyson, like we had that synergy for working together from day one. And so while it was anchored and the work in this project has always been anchored in the Escher, it really has developed into this whole other realm, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's, it, it's come into these conversations with Daryl and I about, you know, well, what does it mean? What does this painting mean? Or what does this lithograph mean? And, and how, do, how do you feel about the bassoon? And how can we make it look, how can we make a bassoon concerto that's athletic while at the same time challenging and musical? And, you know, I think we share a lot of fundamental musicianship beliefs 
And so I like to align myself with those kind of people because it helps me tell my story. So the Escher is part of it, but this project, this, this concerto, which is definitely the largest thing I've ever worked on, is just as much the result of my collaborative conversations with Daryl as it is my inception, my ideas. You know, I bring things to the table, we talk about them, and, I, you know, I mean, he knows the bassoon. He's a master. I, I've right, studied right. the bassoon. I, I know some stuff, but I would never... <laughs> I would never like, I mean, that's his realm. So it's, there's a certain like selflessness or ego, ego ness, you know, lessness that happens at that point. And, um, and so I really trust him and I like to work with people that I trust with trust mm -hmm. in that way so that we can create the best possible product. So it's not, it's not so much like what my vision is at the beginning, as much as it is, what the vision has become cumulatively between the two of us or, or whatever, you know, in this right. case, just, you know, primarily us, but, you know, I mean, I'm also this, this concerto has been really an amazing opportunity for me because just coming to LSU has been an amazing opportunity. And the reason I came to LSU is because of the students and that the faculty and the vibe and, you know, it's like sort of my way of giving back to that community in a lot of ways. So I'm, you know, the orchestra is primarily faculty members, students, top students. So we have an opportunity to make something that really brings us all together. That's amazing. And in listening to you speak, it's it's very interesting because um, I'm noticing some similarities with the, the word that comes to mind. I'm like, oh, that's like how an engineer works. I did um, a year of, of school as an engineer. My father's an engineer and it's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about your process because um, like uh, the engineering process is after you, you're presented with this problem or this idea, and in your case, it sounds like, okay, I've been presented with this artwork. And then it's like, then you have to go deconstruct, okay, how was this, you know, what's my next step? You're doing all this research, you're really deconstructing, diving into understanding like what it is that you're the engineer would be problem solving, but you're diving, okay, what can I do with this? Um, it's, just, it's just really fun. To, I'm like, your parents are scientists. So I'm like, some of that did come down through you. But maybe, maybe so. I, I haven't thought about it that way before, but it, it is, it's true. And, um, and I mean, Bill knows this, like, I, I definitely believe there's a balance in teaching between the mind and the heart. So aesthetically, uh, I, I certainly aim for that same kind of you know, balance. I'm a Libra, so what can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's amazing to hear you talk about just your, your process and hearing, okay, yeah, actually I'm taking, you know, maybe not sitting down thinking, okay, I'm going to do this scientifically, but kind of applying a very methodical approach to it, but coming up with this beautiful, amazing, creative work. So that's, that's just really cool. <laughs> Well, that's, that's working with people that have your synergy, I think, you know, finding those people is so important. Now, um, I, I hate to go back to it, but when you were writing for the Atkins deck, uh, yeah. structure, um, artwork, uh, how, I, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's just my brain. I just can't make that connection, but just that, how do you make that connection then from this steel and metal to wood and string and electronics and yeah. create something from that? Well, I wanted to work with Michael secretly. That was kind of, 
<laughs> I knew that. Because Michael and I met in 2009 in Thailand, and I heard him play, and I was like, I'm working with him. <laughs> and, and this was this was an opportunity, and um, and just the fact that it that the sculpture has a base of basically four main branches. I was like, oh, that's the open strings, and mm. the Roxy Payne drawing of it really got me to thinking about that it also you know a big influence for me has been ligety and registral planning over the course of a piece and you know the viola is a very underestimated instrument it it has the power and the the just beauty of and lyricism of a violin but it also has the heart and soul of a cello so really, I mean, you have a lot there with each one of the strings. And so it was an opportunity for me to really explore each one of those strings evenly. And that's why the piece ended up being 13 minutes long. It's because I really wanted to give each string sort of its, its own as we we're working our way up. And then it ends with the birds and, and then birds have remained a theme in my work. So I don't know. I, I, I blame <laughs> canopy on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's just that that does make a lot more sense with the open strings and things. I uh, just I, I can picture the 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 sculpture in my mind's eye, and just you know, I see this this shiny tree, and I'm just like, uh, what do I do That's, with this? <laughs> but it's it's sixty feet tall. And yeah, so that was the other part I think of that process that was so inspiring to me is that I saw this the sculpture be built over the course of six months. It was not like it just was implanted, you know, in wow. the sculpture garden. I, I worked at UMKC. So Nelson Atkins was just directly across at Brush Creek. And so I saw the cranes coming in and like implementing each part <laughs> of the building for six months. And I was like, wow, this is like a, a, a like a craftsman working, you know, building wow. his shop or her shop. And, you know, so I, I, that's what the piece became for me. And the electronic part was, you know, it was one of my first ish electronic pieces. Um, and so it was really kind of a, a test, um, in that way. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was very fun, you know, to, to take the Roxy pain, which is, you know, really kind of like this mind and machine sort of approach to, to reality. Um, you know, very organic in some ways, but taking these fractals and these, you know, really um, mathematically and scientifically inspired ideas to that realm. So I wanted it to be something that was really um, both mechanistic and artistic, you know, and so the fact that it started low with, you know, the the sword sounds and kind of worked its way up through fire and all the elements to the birds um, and then ended with the high crazy you know ethereal harmonics that was like that was the progression for me it's like just like looking at the sculpture and seeing the sculpture from when it was first being built to when it was finally built and then just being able to stand there and look at it and you know as I guess, I guess I, I liked bringing the experience of, of, it, of that sculpture to the music itself. So maybe we could talk about maybe map of rain hitting water. Sure. So that was kind of a breakthrough piece for me because it was, I mean, I think there's kind of three threads in what I do um, musically. And one is rhythm and the other is timbre. And, you know, the last is lyricism, which I'm just kind of grappling with for the first time in the last few years. But, uh, but rhythm and timbre are very much present in Map of Rain Hitting Water. And that was a, a really great opportunity. Mark Lowry of New Ear Contemporary Music Ensemble in Kansas City 
asked me to write, he commissioned me to write a piece and he said, I want you to use percussion in a new way. And I'm like, oh my God, crap. What, <laughs> <laughs> what, am I, what do I have to offer? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we went into a studio and I mean, I guess in a lot of ways, this, the process started very much with this piece because I asked him what he wanted, what, what he liked to do. And so he showed me this really cool thing that he could do with fiber foam with bending pitches um, with a rubber mallet, two rubber mallets. And I mean, it's dope, it's doable, you know, but it was a technique that he enjoyed doing. And so I built the piece very much around that idea. And um, it was inspired by a poem by my friend Wayne Miller who is now in Denver, Colorado, and um, wonderful poet, uh, professor, writer, all those things. But um, there was a phrase from his poem at the very end, and it was a map of rain hitting water. And I just thought that is so beautiful. And the poem itself was <clears throat> really beautiful in terms of the way that the, the syllables laid on the page versus the way they were spoken or read <clears throat> and that that fascinated me so i started playing with those proportions and and some of the sounds that mark had given me and that's eventually what led to map of brain hitting water it was initially just a percussion piece and then i added video later and uh i like both versions equally as much i i I collaborate. Barry Anderson did one video, and then Caitlin Horsman did another video, um, and that was, you know, it. It sort of that that piece has had its had its realm in lots of different ways. So it's a piece that I think can exist as music, and it can exist as as a video piece, or you know, an installation as well. Uh, it, that was a really amazing pro project for me. <laughs> So when I first heard the juxtaposition of the two sounds was just absolutely stunning. And I just want to say like, holy cow, that's, that's been one of my favorites that I've heard in a while. So just, oh, thank ah. you. <laughs> that was a great recording too. I mean, Mark, it was exceptional and he just, I mean, we worked so hard on getting those sounds fluid and, and we had a great recording engineer at UMKC, Bob Beck. And he really captured the piece beautifully. Yeah, I found myself like just holding my breath and I was like, I can't do this for 16 minutes. I need to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think that was that's the piece that I if I if I said if I could say one piece was really, truly inspired by Morton Feldman, that would be the one because it, it there's a timelessness to it, I think. And, you know, there was something that I was really fascinated. I, I don't think consciously at the point of writing it, but like now seeing it almost 15 years later from the original version you know it's just like oh that was that <laughs> in my writing you know making that connection no i mean it's just it's totally enigmatic for our listeners you have to go check this piece out it's it's amazing <laughs> yeah it is definitely one of the the coolest pieces and I, I you know i've i had thought about mixing somehow like a piece with with visual component and it's always been seen so daunting. Uh, how did you go about, you know, mentally meddling those two? That's a great question. Um, well, the piece totally existed as a piece of music first. Right. So um, I will say that other pieces and collaborations of mine didn't happen that way. But th that particular piece was a piece of music before the video came. And the video that I would say I'm, I'm most pleased with is the video with that Caitlin did, Caitlin Horseman. And she and I have collaborated on several projects, including E-Tip, Blackbird Project. Um, she She's a musician. And so there was, a, again, it's synergy. Um, she was able to find a lot of musicality in the visuals. And I think I was able to find a lot of visual, you know, visual metaphor in what, what she was doing. So we work really well together and she was she was familiar with my process and we're very close friends so i find it hard to separate those two things you know it's you're in <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it it definitely 
this energy definitely makes the whole process so much easier. Yeah. If you can just come, you know, it definitely doesn't make it a hassle when it, <laughs> you know, it's a, when it's a pretty strenuous project like that. Well, and I mean, like, just to go back to somebody like Megan Enan, I mean, she's another person that came into my life at a point that I, I don't know, it was just really critical. I didn't know it at the time, but the recording that we did of One Voice with Michael Hall was probably one of the most impactful experiences that I've ever had because mm. they were both, I, I think, floored because I was like, let's try this, you know, let's, I'm not coming into this with a, a pre- you know, formulated idea of what it necessarily has to be. I have some premises, definitely. There's parameters, but let's play a little bit. And, you know, now after having worked with Megan on three projects, it's allowed me to really push that. Um, this last project that we did with Daryl, um, White Ash with Megan and Daryl, mm -hmm. I mean, it started out with us reading the poem and those two improvising and just making sounds. And those were the sounds that basically informed the piece, you know? Wow. So like, that's a huge level of trust. And I don't think I would have ever gotten there without Megan, you know I mean? Right. She's just so, she's so willing to go there and, and, and you don't, a lot, of, a lot of performers are not. So I find it a real gift when you have that entry way. Well, and I like what you said about, there's something that I think is, maybe you've repeated um but it's this, this idea that you're not going in with this vision and i feel like so many contemporary composers have you know this idea or maybe this is just my own bias with who i've run into but they it seems like people really have this like okay i have this idea in my brain and i have to bring this to life and if i don't bring this to life then the piece is crap but I love just your idea of like, okay, I'm not going in with this vision. I'm not going in with this expectation. I'm going to, I'm going to allow the energy around what's going on. Um, I just, I find that really beautiful and very, very stunning. I mean, it's a really cool approach. It's been really humbling to work with musicians that I've had the opportunity to work with. So um, again, I think we're in a different place than we were 200 years ago, 100 years ago, even 50 years ago. Um, in composition and um, bringing the performers, bringing the audience in—that's that's all. That's all part of the equation. It's got to be. Well, that's huge, and I I love that that I mean it makes it such just an enjoyable experience, and I, I think that really translates into your music. Um, I listened to a few pieces and just like just found myself pulled in. Um, I find that, and I guess music doesn't always have to pull you in, but I I really enjoy that there's just that that care and attention there I feel like a lot of um there's a lot of music out there that can alienate you right off the bat and you're just like oh maybe this wasn't for me but listening to your music you're like I just felt like a little kid being like oh, what's gonna happen next <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's such a compliment and you know I mean Secret Sky was another piece that really helped me get to that point in my music um this was the orchestra piece that Beaver Island commissioned and I think the mo one of the most satisfying points in my career was going to that performance. It was a commission and seeing 250 people in an elementary school, like thrilled that I had written a piece for their community. You know, I mean, it was just like, that, that's what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, holy cow. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I in just, the idea of being able to pull the community together through that those kinds of relationships uh i feel is so missing nowadays um it seems very alienated you know yeah and especially now <laughs> <During COVID>. <laughs> <laughs> for sure um and I, I mean i think that's another part of like the art community and the literary community that i really enjoy tapping into is because it it creates a larger community and a larger way for people to come in and out of those experiences. Just like dance does the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
The bassoon concerto, do you have like a performance idea or a date when this will be done or? Yes. Um, so we are recording it between April 15th through 17th. Okay. And, um, it's going to be a three movement concerto and I'm halfway done with the third movement. It's going to be about 25 minutes long. And um, it's inspired by four images by M.C. Escher. First is ascending, descending. The second is day and night. The third, I'm sorry, the second is three worlds. The third is day and night. And then that transitions into the last one, which is waterfall. So the last two images inform the third movement. But there's a series of cadenzas through the piece um, that the performer can choose to either implement or not. Mm. And I mean, to me, that that's really in line with a lot of what Escher's works are about in terms of perspective. Mm -hmm. So um, there'll be four cadenzas uh, as well. And, you know, we'll see. My, my idea was that it would bring bassoonists, young bassoonists in to some of the techniques that the concertos, you know, really exploiting growl tones, quarter tones, multiphonics. Um, each tool, you know, that I'm exploring will be sort of the entryway will be in these cadenzas. So hopefully younger bassoon students will play those. And whether they make themselves into the concerto performances or not, you know, it doesn't so much matter. But um but I'm really excited and it's, I've learned so much through this process. I mean, I went into it thinking, oh sure, I can write a bassoon concerto. And then I was like, about midway through, like what was I thinking <laughs> about balance and like, oh my God. But I mean, that's where the learning really has allowed itself to, you know, come through with, with Daryl in particular, because we have that relationship where we talk about things very candidly. So, um, so yeah, so we'll record. We were planning on having a performance, but obviously we're going to uh, record that and probably broadcast that. Um, oh, cool. And in tandem, I'm probably, I'm hoping to also broadcast um, my three songs, one, uh, one Voice, The Clockmaker's Doll, and White Ash, which are my three pieces that are inspired by Megan and instrumentalists on one of the halves and um, it'll be sort of a mini pastiche opera. Oh, cool. So, um, so hopefully those two things will happen at the same time. And uh, yeah, it's just, it, I'm sort of dreading this project ending because it's it's been going on for two years and it's like the biggest thing ever that I've done. And so I'm, I'm already trying to think like, what am I gonna do next? <laughs> Is there gonna be anything <laughs> you know? <clears throat> I think that before I even start another piece, so, you know. Well, good for you. <laughs> like, oh, what am I going to do after I do this one? Oh, I'm not done with it. That's okay. What's the next one? Yeah. <laughs> this one has enveloped me more than anything else, so I don't know. <laughs> I've got some ideas, but we'll, we'll have to, we'll see. <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the so, I mean, going back to the, the cadenzas idea, that, that definitely reminds me of, um, was it like Mozart and you know the issue with his cadenzas you know and then even like or more contemporary like Rachmaninoff you know he had multiple cadenzas for all of his piano concertos right right well I mean yeah I mean I just see that there's all these little and and if you look at the images particularly of ascending descending and waterfall there's like these these individuals that are there that are looking out and they're, it's almost as if they're looking at different perspectives of the artwork itself. And that's what gave me the idea of these cadenzas somehow tying in. Um, so it, and, and each one is like a little morsel of a, of a motivic idea and in that movement itself. So, um, so yeah, it's been a fun process. So ascending and descending is, um, that was, I actually thought the concerto was going to just be inspired by that image itself. But then after the, I think the first movement is about eight minutes long. I realized it had to be like a series and the progression of images. I just started researching Escher and I, I just, there's, there's so much. So <clears throat> ascending, descending and waterfall 
are these two like sort of castle-like structures. So it, to me, it made a lot of sense to have those at the bookends of each, you know, end of the concerto. But then the middle two images, Three Worlds and Day and Night, are, you know, much more focused and much more um, sort of timbrely sensitive and um, particularly Three Worlds has this fish under, I don't know if you're looking at it right now, but there's the reflection of these three trees on the top. There's essentially three layers and the, the trees are being reflected on a lake with leaves. And then there's this huge fish underneath. And I was like, I can't live in Louisiana and not do something with this piece. Yeah. <laughs> As I, I One of Daryl and I's favorite things to do is walk the lakes. And so um, a lot of birds have made their way into that, um, cormorants in particular, and they're honking, you know, low notes. So, um, and then day and night is just a great visual dichotomy um, you know, one of these puzzles. It's the only lithograph I included, so it's more, there's a lot more wood and um, there, there's more grain, more of a graininess in that piece, but um, same symmetry that you can see in a lot of the other ones, um, and then that gradually kind of works its way into the, the waterfall, which I'm envisioning as being a part of one of the cities in Day and Night. In, in the oh. And so you kind of work your way down into the, the city and that's what we end with, so. Yeah, I mean, so Abby and I were trying to figure out like, what is she using for this? <laughs> you know, cause I, I like Escher too, but uh, we were just, we were going through the pictures and um, I mean, originally started with an argument about whether Chevron and zigzags are the same thing or not. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we started looking at the pictures. I was just like, what is she going to use? There's so much, like, so many cool ones. And I picked out the, the three worlds. And I was just like, that one looks like walking around, you know, uh, what is it? Blue Bonnet Bayou in Baton yeah. Rouge. And you see the trees and the water. And then you might see a fish every once in a while. It's like, I don't know. I would pick that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all of them have these multiple layers that you can hook in on. And I think that's what has always attracted me to Escher. In fact, I was, my, my parents moved out of my house that I grew up in not too long ago. And I found like an old yearbook from my senior year in high school. And we're able to pick like a page and I chose an Escher picture. Oh, wow. For, like my backdrop. And it wasn't any of these, but I was like, that's interesting. Why am I so fascinated with him? But, um, but I, I think the idea of like uh, the infinite forever loops, um, you know, sort of a certain futility in, in visual conundrums, a lot of those themes, I think I'm interested in sonically, mm -hmm. you know, timbrely. How can you mask the sound and have it become another sound? What's the difference between an individual and a community, especially in ascending, descending, where the monks are like, you know, walking around the top of the, the building. And, right, you know, right. And then, you know, it, you can't tell what what is going up and what is going down. And you know, there's actually 46 steps going up and 44 steps going down. And so that created this whole rhythm, this rhythmic, you know, um, uh, ace, uh, you know, symmetry there. And, you know, and then each level of that, you know, has four distinct levels, whereas three worlds has three distinct levels. It's like the above world, the actual world and the underworld. They mm. all have like stories from different vantage points. So, um, so I think that's what really inspired me. Yeah. I mean, the ascending descending, it's, it's just fascinating. And I see the people who mm -hmm. are sitting like on the steps and on the portico. Right. One is looking know. up at the monks and one is looking out. I mean, how yeah. interesting is that? Yeah. I mean, we could go all day about, you know, religious connotations with the use of monks and things. Well, um, religious connotations <clears throat> at the time, this was 1961, you know, <clears throat> post-World War II. I mean, there's just so many things there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I was like, would she use the one where he's holding the globe and he's 
you know, looking at himself or, you know, well, so these definitely are so cool with the loops. And I like that idea. On shepherd tones, I did a lot of research and, and Bach, you know, it right. comes back to Bach for me, you know, in a very beautiful way. Um, the Goodell Escher Bach book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but um, no, I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. Um, creating, you know, parallels between Matt, uh, mathematician Goodell, Escher, you know, visual conundrums and Bach musical oh, wow. conundrums. And so th that kind of got me thinking about this, but I, I quickly got away from the math of it and the sort of science <laughs> of it. The imagination. You don't need it. <laughs> you already did enough math with figuring out how many steps there were. Well, so. I, I was counting. <laughs> I do have a graph though. Um, and, you know, we were doing these uh, promo videos for Escher Keys, which is the name of the concerto. And so I, I mapped out like how, how many times would it take 44 to 46 to actually come together like oh, in yeah. clapping music or something. So wow. that's, that's the, the math. I'd be happy to send it to you if I can find a scan of it, but. Yeah, just a look. <laughs> yeah, that would be fascinating. I mean, Bill knows how much I like to math. I, a whiteboard is very important to me. <laughs> My compositions for you. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to hear this. And it's called Escher K-E-Y-S? Escher Keys, K-E-Y-S, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, it's been great talking with you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for sitting down with us today in this post-COVID world. Thank you again so much. It's been wonderful talking to you and- Yeah, well, it's been my honor. So, you know, best of luck with this podcast. I mean, it's it's exciting to see you doing, I mean, I'm not surprised, but it's exciting <laughs> to see, you know, things happening with students after, you know, and so best of luck. Well, thank you. Thank you. It was so wonderful to meet you, Mara. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sounds of the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. There are links to everything in the episode description and also on our website. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sounds of the World. To show support for Sounds of the World podcast, please join our Patreon, where you can have access to our after-party discussions with guests, discounted merchandise, and even more. If you have any questions, answers, or episode suggestions, please email us at Sounds of the world podcast at gmail.com. Well, Bill, I think I'm going to go have a beer now. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs>